It's nine o'clock on a Saturday A regular crowd shuffles in There's an old man sitting next to me Making love to his tonic and gin This is Lee Habib and you're listening to Billy Joel's Piano Man And we're talking about the Piano Man himself Because on this day in history on May 9th in 1949, he was born to Howard and Rosalind Joel. And shortly after he was born, the family moved to a section of America's famous first suburb, Levittown, on Long Island. Although his father was an accomplished classical pianist, it was Joel's mom who pushed the young boy to study piano. He began playing at the age of four and showed an immediate aptitude for the instrument. And by the time he was 16, Joel was already a pro, having joined his third band before he could drive. It wasn't long before the artist, inspired by the Beatles' iconic Ed Sullivan Show performance, committed heart and soul to a life in music. He dropped out of high school to pursue a performing career, devoting himself to creating his first solo album with Columbia Records' Cold Spring Harbor in 1971. It was a dud. And then came his second record, which we just played, Piano Man. And throughout the years, Joel has become known for his willingness to hold Q&A sessions with fans in settings across the globe. Here, Billy is asked about the story behind this iconic song. At Harvard University in 1994, here's his answer. Yes, go ahead. Um, one of my favorite songs is Piano Man, and I was wondering what exactly the story is behind all of the lyrics, even though it's somewhat self-explanatory. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> All of the characters in that song actually were real people. John at the bar was this guy named John. And he <laughs> and he was at the bar. There was Davy was in the Navy. And probably still is, you know. <laughs> And let's see, the waitress is practicing, po- the waitress is actually my first ex-wife. <laughs> well, I have to get used to first ex-wife and second ex-wife now, it's a new thing. But, um, <laughs> let's not even get into that. Okay, so she was a cocktail waitress while I was... Uh, playing the piano at this place for a while and uh, let's see what else happened in that song and the waitress practice politics as the businessmen stole they get businessmen actually got stoned in the place they're sharing a drink they call it better than drinking alone right okay a real estate novelist okay good question Paul is a real estate novelist Paul was this guy who was a real estate broker, but he was writing the great American novel. And Paul was always saying, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book. I'm writing the great American novel. Uh, you know, Paul, what do you do, like, you know, normally? Well, I, I, real estate. So that's a real estate novelist. Explains that. Let's see, what else? It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Okay. 
Regular, regular crowd shuffles in. Old man sitting next to me, making love to his tonic and Okay, a little, a little bit of poetic license there. <laughs> Wasn't really making love to his tonic and gin because that could be pretty gross, actually. <clears throat> he says, "Son, can you play me memory?" I'm not really sure what goes. Saying a sweet, you know, complete uh, younger man's clothes. Okay, he didn't rhyme actually when he when he said it, but he essentially asked me, you know, can you sing an old song? Oh, la da 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 da. La da 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 da. Self-explanatory. Sing a song, piano man. Sing a song. Okay. Now, John, the bar's friend of mine, gets me my drinks for free. True. Free drinks. The gigs suck, but free drinks, hey, you know. Uh, and he's quick with a joke. He was quick, he was, he was always telling a joke. Light up your smoke, I used to smoke. I did this gig for six months, and people would come up to me and go, you're too good for this place. What are you doing here? Why don't you, I can get you a record deal, because everybody in Hollywood is, is an entrepreneur. They go, I can get you a deal, I can hook you up with a producer. I know a producer. Everybody in, in, in Los Angeles is a producer. I don't really know what a producer is. I, I thought it was somebody who produces. But produces what, you know? In Hollywood, they produce producing, you know? Um, you know, I produce sweat, really. I mean, we're all producers. Uh, we produce bodily byproducts, you know? We're all producers. So, uh, and they would say, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? And I would say, oh, no, I love it here. I hate the music business. I don't want. I want to be here. I was lying through my teeth, but I really didn't want to deal with another shyster. Essentially, was what was going on. So it was a true story. Um, and I thought, as I was playing in this gig, I said, "I've got to write a song about this." I said, "Nobody's going to believe this. I got to write a song about this." And essentially, that's where the idea came from. So a very long answer to a very short question. Yep, he had left New York to move to Los Angeles. And he was working at the executive room on Wilshire Boulevard. He was the lounge pianist under the pseudonym Bill Martin. And what a great story about where this all comes from. He takes a big risk and heads out west. When we come back, we're going to talk about his trip back east because he moves back. Say goodbye to Hollywood is what we'll come in with. Turnstiles and forward to his first hit record, big hit record, The Stranger. The Life of Billy Joel. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. John at the bar is a friend of mine He gets me my drinks for free And he's quick with a joke Or to light up your smoke But there's some place that he'd rather be He says, Bill, I believe this is killing me As a smile ran away from his face But I'm sure that I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place Oh, la, 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 da, da, da.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. That's Billy Joel, Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Turnstiles may be one of his finest records. And it's the record before his big, big breakout hit record. Up until then, Piano Man had been solid. Put him on the map for real music, folks. But what hit the charts, what really exploded his career, was a single. And it's a single you all know. And here's Billy Joel talking about the song Just The Way You Are. I put out something like four albums on Columbia Records before I had a successful hit album. Uh, I don't think people can do that anymore. And luckily, Columbia Records stayed with Billy Joel. Don't go changing to try and please me. You never let me down before. Mm-hmm. Don't imagine you're too familiar. And I don't see you anymore I would not leave you In times of trouble We never could have come this far mm-hmm. I took the good times I'll take the bad times I'll take you just the way and that album went on to be number two the next eight records four were number one and he's right today no label would stick for an artist that stick with an artist that long and again go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to what we did with Amart Ertigan back when there were great label guys who stuck with artists and let them develop. And I, I believe today there would be no Billy Joel. Cold Spring Harbor would have come out, it would have flubbed, and that would have been it. See ya, next. And so, what a smart move by Columbia Records. Joel stayed there his whole life in gratitude, I believe, as Springsteen did and so many of the artists did there because they had real A&R guys. And Joel went on to sell 150 million records. Crazy. 13 albums, 33 top 40 hits, 23 Grammy nominations, a Library of Congress Gershwin Prize, ASCAP Centennial Award, really crazy, and of course the Kennedy Center Awards, which we're going to get to later, because my goodness, what a spectacular presentation some of the artists did honoring Billy Joel. Well, there was an interview with Dick Cavett in 1990 where Billy Joel talked about his cure for writer's block and also his ability to dream in music. My cure for writer's block is to dress like a writer, sort of some kind of Chopin-esque outfit with a scarf, Mm -hmm. something with some flair to it, some maybe even patches on the jacket, elbows. He's not kidding, folks. No, I'm serious about this. Yeah. And I go to a cafe or a brasserie, some some place you'd see a famous writer, perhaps... writing or, or, or pontificating or just a, the place where artists would be and I sit at a table by myself I order an espresso or a glass of wine and I sit there and I look like a writer I look, and I have my notebook with me and I have my my pen with the pen poised or behind the ear or sometimes just licking the tip of the pencil which is bad for the tongue but 
I've now, I've got all the, you know, to all appearances sake, I am in the throes of writing, and the waiter will tiptoe over, well, can I get you anything else, Mr. Joe? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, uh, and also, obviously he's writing, and he'll tell the other waiters, don't bother him, he's writing. Mr. Joel is writing. And then there'll be a buzz around the room, people expecting me to be writing. And I actually kind of kickstart the writing process by everyone expecting me to write, uh -huh. and me feeling like such a writer. I'll actually fool myself into starting the process. Right. But that's usually when I haven't been able to write lyrics. Mm -hmm. Music, I dream music constantly. I always dream. I dream music. Some people dream scenarios. They dream, um, you know, scenes and, and situations. Yeah. Um, I don't dream like that. I dream and in the abstract. I dream shapes. I dream colors and I dream music. That's something. I mean, that tells you a lot right there. I mean, the guy dreams music. You're going to learn later in this hour that Joel, more often than not, comes up with the music first. And that's where the problem occurs is how do, how do I get the lyrics to fit the music? And that's actually how Elton John and Bernie Taupin, well, they do it actually in reverse. Bernie writes the words and then Elton does the music. So go figure. Artists approach this in so many different ways. Here's Joel talking to Dick Cavett about how he hires other musicians to help him with the songwriting process, who are there to just make sure he isn't copying a song he had already heard that was written by someone else by accident. I wrote a song and lyrics, and it, 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 it brought it in, and I showed the musicians, and I Anthony works in the grocery store, saving his pennies for some man. I said, isn't this great? And they went, that's Neil Sadaka's laughing in the rain. <laughs> and I was crushed. I said, almost note for note. And I said, and I wrote lyrics. I spent the time and effort to even write lyrics to this thing. Well, I was yeah. damned if I was going to throw away a perfectly good set of lyrics. So I finished out the song with a complete different melody. But I, I'm glad I have musicians <laughs> around to help me catch that. I even have a musicologist uh, that I hire when I'm writing just to catch making sure that I don't do it. You but knew of the other song. It isn't that you'd never heard it. It just didn't click You know in what? Your head. I didn't even know that I knew maybe the song. Yeah. And then somebody played me the record, and I, maybe I'd heard it once. The other night it occurred to me, I may start up a whole nest of hornets here, but uh, there is a, a soundtrack to the movie called Cinema Paradiso. Mm -hmm. Great soundtrack. But there's one part of it goes, da 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 and it's just, I just like, I've never been in love before, but all at once. And I said, wait a minute, where have I heard this? It? it happens all the time. Yeah. I think there are, I've even found Beethoven lifting Mozart. But the intention was different, and he didn't follow through on it. Of course, I don't know if their lawyers talk to each other anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Vienna. Well, they're decomposing right now anyway. And they are. But it's been happening through the centuries. Artists lifting I know, rimshot. Artists stealing from one another without knowing they're stealing. Highest compliment in some odd ways. And here's Billy Joel talking to Dick Cavett about his songwriting process, saying that the minute you try to write a hit song deliberately, you've actually defeated the songwriting process itself. I've never sat down and said, I'm going to write a hit. I, it would be like writing a beer commercial. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I write what I want to hear. I write what I want to do. And I put it on an album, and I write it in tandem and in conjunction with a whole bunch of other songs. Now, I give that album to the record company, and the record company says, we want to put this out as a single. 
I say, well, go ahead. I wouldn't know a hit single if it came and smacked me in the face. But I think what happens is people hear a particular recording out of context with the other songs that are around it and assume, oh, he just wrote this one song just to be a hit record. And that's not what happens. Not with me, at any rate. I wish sometimes I could sit down and write a hit record, to be perfectly honest, to shut a lot of people up. If you could do that and also produce the formula for how to write one, uh, you, you would have a best-selling... Yeah, but, but I think the minute you've tried to write a hit, you've, you've defeated this, the songwriting process like setting out to make a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. Towards itself. That's right. So here's the guy who wrote hit after hit after hit after hit. And his advice to folks who are trying to write hits, don't try to write a hit. And by the way, he always wanted to be a teacher, felt obligated. And thus, you're going to be hearing, you already heard a clip of a Q&A at Harvard in 1990-something. You'll hear in the next segment a Q&A about how the song Lullaby came to be. Because in the end, he was always touring around the country periodically with just a keyboard in smaller venues at colleges mostly, talking to young people who all still know and love his music. And they show up at his concerts all the time, explaining how he does what he does and trying to teach the next generation about what it takes to do what he does, the craft of songwriting and singing and performing. This is Lee Habib, the life of Billy Joel, for the hour, born on this day in history, and this day in history always brought to you by Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to see their great, great online courses. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Billy Joel being celebrated this day in history, brought to you by Hillsdale College, the best place in this country to learn about all the finer things in life, from the arts to the humanities and to the political formations of this great country. And by the way, what you'd learn at Hillsdale is that this patent right in the first article of the constitution our founders guys like benjamin franklin were thinking about well the people like billy joel down the road because billy owns his publishing and my goodness what would the world be like if he didn't where would the artistic and create and and and, and this creativity come from if the writer couldn't own his work and we've learned that over and over again as we celebrated the life of sinatra and those songwriters and this is one of the greats billy joel 
born on this day in history. And, you know, at a time when guitars were driving everything in music, well, this guy was playing the keyboards. And in this clip from 1977, which we dug, dug up, a young Billy Joel talks about comparisons between that other guy who was famous at the keyboard, Elton John, and another guy who was just highly regarded behind the keyboard, very different stylist, Leon Russell. Let's hear from Billy. Elton really broke the piano pop barrier, and he became the, uh, the definitive piano rock artist. And anybody who became known after him was compared to Elton John. Uh, I don't play the same way he does. Elton's style is, is uh, very rhythmic, you know. Like Like Leon Russell is another guy you used to get comparisons to. Um, and he's more like gospel, you know. All right, ooh, you know. And my style is probably, uh, it's more five finger. More movement stuff. Um, I, I took a while for people to, to get away from using the Elton John comparison. I think it's pretty much died down at this point. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Please, please, hey. give me a break. Give me a break. And just a New York kid. And again, he moves out to Los Angeles. Then he comes back to New York. And by the way, if you'd ever seen him perform, seeing the lights go out on Broadway after 9-11, I mean, the lyrics were eerie, and it was a really tough song for him to perform at Madison Square Garden, where, by the way, his, his consecutive number of shows, 12 in a row, was a record, and his number is retired at Madison Square Garden. The only non-athlete who has a number hanging from the rafters. Pretty remarkable on the performance level. Let's get back to the songwriting, because I told you that he does these Q&As, and he did one at the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a fantastic moment where towards the end, Billy took questions from the audience, and a woman asked him how her favorite song, and a young woman, easily 25 to 30 years younger than Billy, she wanted to know about her favorite song, lullaby and how it came to be and here's billy joel explaining it all right so i had this 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 uh this melody which is how i write songs i, I wrote the music first she goes daddy what happens when you die so i said oh man okay and I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They, they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing like that are you gonna leave me and I said I'll never leave you I'll now ne I will never leave you I'll never go away I will never never ever leave you so um it, it was it was a tough answer you know in, in both respects so I'm trying to remember when, when I was writing him so he struggles a little bit more and he's actually tearing up you can tell this is a really hard song for him to sing and this is the thing about music in the end and a story and think about this he's he's really trying to solve a problem that's what brings him to this song. 
So let's go a little bit further down in this masterclass. Here's Billy Joel again. Questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you, and you should always know. And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a, almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby And in your heart there will always be a part of me. Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on. And there you have it, a master teacher, a master storyteller. Well, this is one of my favorites. It's one of also Jesse's musician heroes' favorites. And so let's listen to Billy tell another great story. This is one of the most beautiful compositions and one of my favorites and my wife's as well. In every Answered me with no problem. 
We'll be back with more from Billy Joel. This day in history, the great musician and writer was born. More after this. It seems I only felt the thorns And so Some folks like to get away Take a holiday from the neighborhood Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood But I'm taking a Greyhound on the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories for the Hour, The Life of Billy Joel born on this day in history brought to you as always by hillsdale college a great institution a great place for higher learning where you study all the finer and more beautiful things in life in 2013 billy joel was honored at the kennedy center the highest award you can get in the arts to introduce him tony bennett we came of age with the legacy of the great American songbook created by George Gershwin, Jerome Kern, the great Cole Porter, and interpreted by Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, and then myself. (laughs) The whole world loves these songs, but times change, and there was an opening for another songbook. Enter Billy Joel. Billy's an exciting performer who can move and electrify audiences. He does it singing the songs of Billy Joel. Great songs on subjects from love to war, from triumph and to loss, and stories about ordinary people with extraordinary emotions. And he puts them to tunes that you can't get out of your head. What a thrill it was for me to perform with Billy in front of 110,000 of our fellow New Yorkers at Say Stadium singing his New York State of Mind. <laughs> Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joel is no less than a poet, a performer, a philosopher, and today's American songbook. Wow. Passing the torch along and accepting it. And out came the performances first. That great crooner, Don Henley. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Henley. She's got a And coming up next, an unlikely country artist 
to sing Billy Joel's Allentown. Ladies and gentlemen, Garth Brooks. Garth knocked it out of the park. In fact, the comment sections underneath the video and go and go and search it on YouTube and just put in Billy Joel and put in the Kennedy Center and you're going to see, I don't like Garth Brooks, but, and here's why this is Garth performing Goodnight Saigon. Take a listen. going crazy because a bunch of Vietnam veterans came out and sang that song and Joel had to fight back the tears I think Garth connected with his song because Joel was writing about his people out of work miners guys not lucky enough to get a deferment from the draft the working class people is what Billy always wrote about and with whom he connected the most and now we're going to set up as we leave this hour celebrating the life of Billy Joel, because I think it may be his very best composition, Down Easter Alexa. Not a hit, but boy, when he plays it in concert, it stops the show. And the song is about the fishermen of Long Island being driven from their homes. And it's a, it's a song he knows well because he is a Long Islander. 
But it's a song we all know. And he's writing about people who are just struggling to get along in this modern economy. Some are doing great, and some aren't doing as well. And Billy always, as a writer, is always rooting for the underdog, always writing about the underdog, and doing it with emotion and with great power. Let's take a listen to this great composition. The Life of Billy Joel, born on Long Island, writing about Long Island. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib.
This is Our American Stories, and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton. And Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections, Jukin in the Delta with My Old Man, for a publication called HottyToddy.com, one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was. But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who he probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if you had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. 
Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, how old are you? Followed by, okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy, or did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, A Little Piece of Earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Story. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news? There's good rockin' tonight. Rock!
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, including sports. And today we have a sports story for you. Sometimes we bring you stories of our nation's great leaders like George Washington. Other times, it's our greatest artists like Johnny Cash. And today it's one of our great coaches who died on this day in history in 2009, NBA Hall of Famer Chuck Daly. Chuck didn't start off like a Hall of Famer. And by the way, it goes all the way back to 1955, where he started coaching high school basketball in Pennsylvania, a town called Punxsutawney, where he coached high school basketball. And then from there, on to assistant coaching positions at Duke and Boston College. And then it was at the University of Pennsylvania that Daly caught a lot of people's attention. He turned that Ivy League school into a powerhouse. He stopped coaching there in 77, but the players he recruited and trained up in 1979 made it to the Final Four, a little Ivy League team. With all those restrictions on recruiting, that academic rigor, a bunch of guys who probably couldn't ride the pine at the University of Kentucky. I mean, weren't even recruited at UCLA, and they're in the Final Four. And that was Chuck Daly's doing. And instead, Chuck was picked up by the Philadelphia 76ers and the Cleveland Cavaliers bounced around and made his real mark in 1989 and 90 when the team he molded together, the bad boys known as the Detroit Pistons, Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman, Bill Lambeer, just great basketball teams, great basketball rivalries. In 1992, he became the very first coach of the so-called Olympic Dream Team. This is the first time we ever let the professionals play. Up until then, it was college players. But in 92, my goodness. And by the way, no one else should be allowed to be called the Dream Team because Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing, among many, many other giants. Imagine coaching that team and managing those personalities. And so as we often do with our great sports stories, we're getting an assist by Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books on leadership. And by the way, back when Pat was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, he helped to hire and recruit Chuck Daly as an assistant coach, which was Chuck's first NBA job. And of course, he went from the University of Pennsylvania, well, right uptown. One of Pat's books is titled Daily Wisdom, which contains 52 of Chuck Daly's famous sayings that everyone called Chuckisms. And we also have Pat's commentary on them, too. Here's Pat Williams on one of his favorite Chuckisms. Uh, Chuckism number two, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. Chuck always knew his role was more about convincing people than anything else. When he joined the Magic as head coach in 1997, I was excited to be reunited with him. We were both much deeper into our careers and could talk and analyze life and sports from a much more mature point of view. Anyway, the interesting thing happened. Uh, Chuck, in his typical animated fashion, declared, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. What do you mean by that, Chuck, I asked. Well, all I do all day long is sell, he said. I'm selling these players on their role, 
on the team or on the number of shots they'll take or the strategy for the next game. And then I go upstairs and start dealing with the front office. I've got to sell them on why this player isn't working out or why we should be making this trade. And every time I talk to the media, all I'm doing is selling them too. I'm selling them on the progress of the team, our game and season goals, on why I did this and didn't do that in a particular game. I guess I'm selling the media, so they'll go out and sell the fans, so they'll be supportive. Sell, sell, sell. That's all I do. I've thought about that a lot, and I realize Chuck was right. When you get down to it, that's all any of us do. We're all salespeople. Kids are selling mom and dad on why they should stay up later. Young men are selling young women on why they should go out. Corporations are selling clients on why they need their latest product. With every new book deal, I'm out there selling publishers on why they should print my most recent great idea. I often chuckle when young salespeople say to me, my goal is to get out of sales so I can get into management. Buddy, I'm thinking when that day comes and you get into management, then you'll really need to be a salesperson. And the stakes will be a whole lot higher. One way to learn is by studying great role models like Chuck Daly. And another Chuckism from Pat Williams. Chuckism number six, the best asset a coach has is selective hearing. Former Pistons executive Harry Hutt remembers a night toward the end of a season. The players were tired and ready for play on the playoffs to start. In this particular game, the Pistons are down by 15 at the half, Hutt-related. Near the end of halftime, Chuck gathers the players in a huddle and is somewhat animated, lecturing them about their lack of effort and their resulting poor play. About a minute in, an angry voice let out a loud invective. I'll let you imagine it. Everybody wheels around, and it's Dennis Rodman visibly upset, Harry went on. Chuck kicks into selective hearing loss, continues talking, and Rodman shouts out again. Chuck ignores Rodman, continues his speech, and then gives the old one, two, three, let's go, acting like nothing happened. Somehow, the selective hearing loss worked because in the second half, the Pistons rallied for a last-minute win, and Rodman was sensational. Because of Chuck's hearing loss, what could have been an unpleasant scuffle turned into another win for the Pest Pistons. He knew it wasn't personal with Dennis. He was just an intense competitor who wanted to win, and Rodman always referred to Chuck as his surrogate father. Duke University coach Mike Krzyzewski has never forgotten this advice from Chuck. To be a good NBA coach, you need to be hard of hearing and have poor eyesight. In Chuck's case, the memory, the hearing, and eyesight impairment were purely intentional. Learning the art of selective hearing saved Chuck from many an embarrassing, heated, and undoubtedly public episode. Can anyone out there relate to moments like this? Mom and dad, Los Angeles freeway driver, leaders in board meetings. Let his Chuckism inspire you to tune out what doesn't ultimately matter and achieve your goals in creative new ways. 
So well said. Selective hearing loss can save friendships, marriages, and your life. And speaking of Dennis Rodman, here is Rodman himself talking about what Chuck Daly meant to him. I mean, he's like, he's like a father figure because I didn't really have anybody in Detroit. Uh, I didn't really know anybody. And uh, I was 25 years old coming from the ghetto. And um, it's very difficult to at least blast in, in, in the spotlight at such, a, at such a middle age as I was. Because a lot of kids today are coming in at 19, 20. Uh, I came in 25 and, uh, and blossomed at literally... <laughs> At 27, 28, and a lot of guys have always been successful at that age, but uh, I was just really still getting my ears wet at the po- at the moment because I I didn't I've been anywhere you know besides you know Texas and Missouri and that was it you know stuff like that. But I never been around the country like that, and you know I got used to it very quick. And um, and the guys around me, Chuck Daly, really uh, really uh, put some intuitive things in my head. He kept me balanced. He kept me level-headed. He kept me understanding that the fact that, you know, this is a business. This is a game. Uh, enjoy yourself. Don't put yourself in position to uh, um, get influenced by certain people. And uh, he just kept telling me, Dennis, come to my house. I want you to come over here because, you know, I didn't have no family. I just listen to him all the time. Him and his wife and Terry, his daughter. Uh, we sit there at the house, you know, before you go inside, he had white carpet because, you know, you walk in his house, take your shoes off like you're in Japan. And so it's like, you know, I walk in his house, take the shoes off, okay, great. And uh, he had this old badass little chihuahua just trying to bite people. But uh, you know, I just, that's what I like about it because everything about him was very cool, man. And just, he kept everything very level-headed. Kept everything very level-headed. Rodman was never better under anybody than Chuck Daly. It was a remarkable relationship those two guys had, and the least likely mentor-mentee in world history, Chuck Daly and Dennis Rodman, the quality and nature of Chuck Daly's leadership. More on the life of Chuck Daly here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our This Day in History, celebrating the life of Chuck Daly, the Hall of Famer and basketball coach who died in 2009. He coached the high school, college, and professional level and took the Detroit Pistons and turned them into one of the great teams of all time. And we're talking with Pat Williams to hear about Chuck's leadership, his style, and the Chuckisms that he became known for. So let's go back to Pat to hear another one of those Chuckisms that apply to so much more than basketball. Chuckism number 13, we have too many meetings in basketball, and they will kill you. You can talk too much. Players get tired of your voice. Chuck had an interesting philosophy about meetings. He said every time out during a game is a meeting. Every pregame discussion is a meeting. Every halftime is a meeting. Every practice session is another meeting. 
players can only handle so much, and they will start tuning you out. Former Magic assistant Tom Sterner remembers a meeting one morning in New York before a game with the Knicks. We were in a conference room on the 20th floor overlooking the river. I was delivering the scouting report when Chuck, who was standing by the window, starts yelling, Hey, hey, over here, everybody to the window. The players didn't know what to think. Chuck pointed to the river and said, See that ferry? That's the one I took from New Jersey when I was coaching the Nets. That was the end of the meeting. Chuck told me later, I thought they were getting bored and needed a shake-up. They'd had enough. Well, we beat the Knicks that night, and I got a lesson from Chuck about studying people and knowing what makes them tick. Coach Eric Musselman was an assistant with the Magic when Chuck was head coach. Musselman recalls Chuck believed strongly in the importance of letting your assistants have a voice. He told me, don't call timeouts unnecessarily unless you have a serious message to deliver to the troops. They've already heard you too much. Chuck taught me a great leadership principle, said Pistons executive Dan Hauser. Sometimes the fewer words we speak, the better. Over 100-plus games, the players can get tired of your voice. Chuck would let the assistants talk during practice, during halftimes, and during pregame sessions. The players will turn you off if you talk ceaselessly. Then when you do talk, you have their attention. The bottom line, let others speak. There's a good lesson here for parents. Don't talk your children to death. Just like NBA players, they will tune you out, and some of your best parental speeches will end up on the locker room floor. Pick your spots wisely. Don't be afraid to let others speak into your kids' lives, teachers, coaches, pastors. It's amazing how often those voices reinforce the lessons you want your children to learn in ways they will actually get and then remember for years to come. When you do speak, make sure it's the right message at the right time. Timing is critical for maximum impact. It's true that the less said delivers the biggest wallop. Give it a try and see what happens. Oh, and about all those meetings, do you really need them? If they're taking away from productivity, maybe you don't. I'm not knocking the powwows. We all need to see each other's faces now and then and know that we're on the same page. But perhaps one or two fewer timeouts would suffice. And sometimes Chuck Daly let another kind of sound be the voice. When the Pistons were in trouble, sometimes Chuck Daly would call a timeout. And he would sit there, kind of wiggle his tongue around, because he kind of had this thing with his tongue, he'd wiggle around. Didn't say anything. And he just let guys stew. And then he'd say, okay, fellas, huddle up, let's go. Didn't say a word. And they would go out and just take care of business. Really smart. Don't say anything. Really smart. Power of saying nothing. Here again is Pat Williams with a final Chuckism for this story. And by the way, Pat, again, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, the first guy who gave Chuck Daly his first professional job. If you want more, get Pat's book, Daily Wisdom. Let's take a listen. Chuckism number 48 
What are you doing? Broadcaster Jim Gray was Chuck's close friend and has an endless supply of stories about traveling together and hearing Chuck ask this startling question. If I turned a street too soon, Jim recalls, Chuck would say, what are you doing? At a restaurant, if I ordered incorrectly, it was, what are you doing? It's the kind of question that definitely gets your attention. One weekend, when Chuck was head coach for the Magic, we were all flying to New York for the NBA All-Star Weekend. My wife Ruth came along, too, to enjoy time with me at all the gala events. As usual, I had a pile of books with me and read the entire weekend, including during the game. I didn't realize Chuck was watching. But in retrospect, I'm glad he was. In an opportune moment, he pulled me aside. What are you doing, Chuck asked. Do you realize you haven't spoken a word to your wife this entire trip? All you've done is read those books. You'd better watch it. When I told Ruth what he said, her response was, Thank goodness for Chuck Daly. Is there a Chuck Daly in your life? He could be your best friend, your life mate, your spiritual partner, your mom or dad, or a mentor, but we all need someone who will whip our heads around at just the right moment with that question. What are you doing? So pay attention. Chuck's question might just be the wake-up call you need to get your life in order. What a great story. And let's close out with another legendary NBA coach. And this guy knows a thing or two about leading men and leading athletes. And it's Pat Riley, remembering his arch rival. I mean, there was no bigger rivalry than the Lakers and the Pistons. Pat Riley, remembering Chuck Daly. And I remember I took one thing from, from that program, and it's his favorite Irish prayer. And I say it all the time, and probably some of you have already heard me read this, but, you know, for Chuck, may the road rise up to meet you. You know, may the wind be always at your back. You know, may the sun shine warmly down upon your face and the rain fall softly on your fields. And until we meet him again, uh, God will surely hold you and your family in the palm of his hand. I've been carrying this card ever since his funeral. I give it away to people. And, uh, and so I'll never forget Chuck Daly. And that's something when a guy influences and moves you that much that you keep a bunch of cards on you and hand them out to random strangers and you yourself are in the Hall of Fame and one of the great coaches of all time. And I think it had to do with Chuck's wisdom and not his coaching. And I think that's what you'll learn when you read Pat's book. And by the way, do get the book um, because you'll love it. Again, it's called Daily Wisdom, D-A-L-Y Wisdom, and you can get it at Amazon.com as you can get so much of Pat's work. What I really loved about Chuck Daly, I'll never forget, someone had asked him who was the best offensive coach you ever, ever coached. And he said, Dennis Rodman. And people went, well, what are you talking about? The guy doesn't score much. Um, How could that be? And he goes, well, he gets all the rebounds, so that frees up my guards to run. He doesn't shoot, so it frees up my guards to shoot. He sets picks, which frees my guards to shoot. And the only time he shoots is when he grabs an offensive rebound and then puts it in the hole, and it's a dunk. And so when he was scoring his 12 or 14 points a game, he was taking no shots. 
He was taking second shots he created. He was creating more shots for the rest of the team. He was taking care of the defense. He was rebounding every rebound so Isaiah Thomas could go off on the fast break. In other words, he's the greatest offensive player I ever coached. And what an insight into thinking about thinking about life, the assets you have before you, and how to think about things outside the box. He really was an outside-the-box thinker, a great coach, a great man. Chuck Daly died on this day in history. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to their website, hillsdale.edu, to hear their great free online courses. This is Our American Stories, Chuck Daly's story. our American stories and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series the most epic road trip ever we're following Lewis and Clark along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West and our own Alex Cortez brings us our 26th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago they're coming off the winter pause in North Dakota and are hoping to resume their progress westward on the Missouri River the ice broke up on the river, they assumed that they would now be able to ascend into what Lewis thought of as terra incognita. Unknown land. We're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkins. They start out well enough, but when they got beyond the mouth of the Little Missouri River, they began to encounter really ferocious winds. As they document in their journal. Tuesday, 23rd April. Sailed in a bend where the wind came very high. The small canoes took in some water. The wind rose and continued to blow very hard until late in the evening. And they would start out and go a mile and then quit for four or five or six hours. It became so violent that we were unable to proceed. Obliged to halt the first safe place until the wind abated, which was about three hours. Or maybe quit for the rest of the day. And then the next day they would wait until noon or 1 p.m. and start out and go a couple of miles and then quit. And there were times when they were literally unable to move in spite of all of the strength in all of those young men. As the wind was ahead, we could not move today. And sand was getting in their scientific instruments. My pocket watch is out of order. She will run only a few minutes without stopping. Lewis reports that the chronometer, this extremely expensive piece of scientific instrumentation, has been befouled. I can discover no radical defect in her works and must therefore attribute it to the sand. This has happened to me on a number of occasions where you take a 35-millimeter camera out there and you come back and you can hear the grit as you try to adjust the lens and it takes three or four weeks to work all that grit out of the camera. Sore eyes is a common complaint among the party. I believe it originates from the immense quantities of sand which is driven by the wind in such clouds that you are unable to discover the opposite bank of the river in many instances. 
So penetrating is this sand, we cannot keep any article free from it. In short, we are compelled to eat, drink, and breathe it very freely. Lewis's capacity to write about this. You can hear the alarm in his voice, but you can also hear a scientific fascination that what's this phenomenon? You know, we're eating it, we're breathing it, we're blinded by it. Our scientific instruments are befouled and useless. And I don't think anybody from the expedition, with the exception of Charbonneau and Sacagawea, had ever seen wind like this before. Sacagawea being native to the area, and Charbonneau, their French interpreter, who had been there for many years. And this was a very strong party. These were essentially Navy SEALs or Olympic athletes who were pushing these boats towards Montana, and, and they literally couldn't make headway. The winds of this country has become a serious obstruction in our progression onward, as we can't move when the wind is high without great risk. And Lewis, who is always impatient, always concerned about the fate of the expedition, always worried that something is going to break their esprit de corps and, and determine them to, to quit, he begins to really worry about this. And there's a passage in the journals where he says, well, maybe it, it never stops blowing. Seeing but little prospect of a favorable change. Maybe this is just what it is here. Maybe this is one of those places where there are perennial winds. And he wonders if that's true. How are we going to get through? And maybe we can't get through if this is the permanent nature of this section of the upper Missouri. Well, we know because we have hundreds of years now of weather reports and accumulated data that the wind will die down. It's seasonal. And if it's if it blows 10 days in a row, that doesn't mean it's going to blow 400 days in a row. And so soon enough, the wind abates a little. It's still horrible, but they're able to make more progress. And, and each day thereafter, as, as June comes on in 185, they're able to think less about wind and move more significantly into the center and the west of Montana. But for that period, I think there was something like actual fear on the part of the captains that the wind could be the factor uh, that prevented them from successfully completing Jefferson's mission. And, you know, this will sound maybe a little nutty to people who don't live on the Great Plains, but if you live on the Great Plains, you know exactly what they were feeling because the spring winds can often be so horrendous that they rattle your brain. Your brain just kind of shuts down. You just, the, the overstimulation is really upsetting to lots of people. There's no day of the year, not Memorial Day, not Labor Day, not the 4th of July. There's no day of the year that might not be ruined by high winds if you try to have a picnic. If you have a family reunion or a church event, the wind, um, it can be 102 degrees, but the wind is such that you have no interest whatsoever in being outside. Even when you drive North Dakota now with high-end automobiles, the wind will buffet you across the highway. Your car is just like a shuttlecock in the face of this, and you spend all of your time gripping the steering wheel, trying to keep it in its own lane. And the wind is so fierce that it, it, it 
presses through the rubber seal on the windows and the doors, and there's a shrieking noise that happens. And you realize it's windy today when my car is shrieking, even though, you know, it might only be three weeks or three months old. I mean, that's how bad it is here. Lewis and Clark did not know that it would abate, and they were just starting out. They knew they had an immense distance to make up in 185. They had to go from Fort Mandan to the Great Falls, to the source of the Missouri, over the Rocky Mountains, down whatever streams were on the other side, and get to the ocean. And they were planning at this point to come partway or maybe all the way back in that calendar year. And so being held up for any reason was objectionable to Meriwether Lewis. But when he saw these winds, he, he was really disheartened. But what I'm disheartened by is that I don't know whether some areas like the Great Plains that they were passing through naturally have more wind than, say, where I live, Mississippi. And if so, why? Chicago is called the Windy City because there's no barrier between Chicago and the North Pole, essentially. Because the Great Plains are treeless, the winds have less to stop them. But there are also places where there are just more winds. And what happens is that the Rocky Mountains lift the air inevitably. So whatever's coming in from the Pacific, the prevailing currents of wind are from the west towards the east. When those winds reach the Rocky Mountains, they're lifted. That cools them. Then they plummet down on the other side. And that produces different sorts of violent meteorological activity. In the summer, it can be thunderstorms. In the winter, it can be sudden blizzards. The temperature changes on the northern Great Plains can be 10, 15, 30 degrees in an hour, sometimes more. And this is because of the uplift effect of of the Rocky Mountains. And the treelessness adds to that. Interestingly enough, during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters ever, a period of drought coupled with overplowing of the plains. Overplowing that took out the grass and left the soil exposed to winds and a drought that turned this soil into dust by the time the wind picked it up. Led to this catastrophe and millions of tons of topsoil blew away and they blew not just over Minnesota but all the way to Washington DC. In fact there was a congressional hearing about the Dust Bowl and they took a break to go out to watch the soil from the Midwest fly over the national capital. It's it's a shocking thing they go out and it's dark and, and they Someone says, this is it. This is what we're, this is what our committee meeting is about. The Great Plains are blowing. So FDR, who saved the Great Plains, decided that we needed shelter belts, that if we planted trees, they would break the wind or at least help to break the wind. And so they became a standard feature of the American West ever since. At one point, FDR actually wanted a single belt of trees to go all the way from the Canadian border to the bottom of Texas, that there would be a a sort of line almost along the 100th meridian of this immense national shelter belt. You know, Donald Trump wants a wall on the Mexican border. FDR wanted a wall in the heart of the Great Plains to try to stop the wind a little bit. Now we have something called no-till agriculture, and so plowing doesn't happen very often anymore. There's, There's almost always some ground cover left. And so if this had been the case, if we'd had this agricultural technology in 1920, we might have been able to avoid 
the Dust Bowl, and, and soil scientists talk about the percentage of the topsoil that has been lost and lost forever. The topsoil is replaced essentially glacially. It takes hundreds of thousands of years to make an inch of topsoil, and a foot of it can blow away. And that doesn't really have anything to do with Lewis and Clark, but I just love listening to Clay. I hope you do, too. And great job as always, Alex, and thanks to Clay Jenkinson, and you can hear all of his work at claydjenkinson.com. He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark Periodical. We proceeded on the most epic road trip ever. We're following along the lives of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery 200 years ago. 